Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Before we jump into our conversation, the Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings Podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings Podcast. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. In this episode, we are going to talk about alcohol. <laughs> and uh, This is not a Drinklings episode, right? It's not a Drinklings. I'm out of coffee. So we, my wife, when she saw that title, she was like, what? And I'm like, no, we were drinking coffee. So I did think later, maybe we shouldn't have called that one coffee drinking episode. Drinklings. We've never had another Drinklings episode. This no. is Drinklings too. No, we can't call this one Drinklings. <laughs> it's Drinklings, but it's dry. Uh, no, we, we can't. <laughs> I mean, I have a water bottle here, and if Jesus wants to change it, he can. But uh, I don't anticipate that happening. Anyway, so we're going to talk about alcohol in this episode. I almost to- brought grape juice. <laughs> We could do a communion service. No, that's horrendous. Uh, but that was good. Tim. Before I'll, I'll we you- have that conversation, a Thinklings conversation about alcohol, we have some Thinklings business to attend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. So there are several books that uh, discuss ancient wine and the Bible. Uh, the one that I have in front of me is David Brumbelow, Ancient Wine and the Bible: The Case for Abstinence. David Bombadil. <laughs> Tom Bombadil. The forewords written by Paige Patterson, so he was a pretty influential individual within the Southern Baptist Convention, but not anymore. Um, Anyway, the book is uh, a lot of primary sources, and it is is helpful um, in that he he gives a lot of um, information in the book, like he will cite Aristotle. He specifically quotes Aristotle, water, on the other hand, does not give off fumes, but vapor, and that's Aristotle. So he, he's combined a lot of primary uh, sources, primary evidence. My big beef with him is that he is basically just working off of English translations. So for example, uh, at one point he quotes Aristotle, those liquids which are thickened by heat are a mixture and then later he says, a slightly different translation of Aristotle. I'm like, can you just interact with the Greek? And evidently he couldn't or didn't or whatever. So that made it more work for me. And his citation system was poor. But uh, still, mm, there is a yeah. nice... So he used notes. notes. Shout out to Caleb Sturgis, by the way, who sent me that glorious quote about C.S. Lewis and Endnotes. Okay, that's so coming. Don't worry. I and He does use Endnotes, but that's not the reason why I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, we do. Oh! Okay, now I got to read the Endnotes I don't quote. care because that's not the reason why I didn't like it. The issue is he's constantly quoting, um, he's constantly citing sources incorrectly. So for example, uh, Aristotle, he just says, Aristotle Meteorology Book 4. Oh, thanks a lot. Where do I look? Meteorology book four. Really? Okay. Well, don't so, you have your Greek text of Aristotle? Yeah. Mr. Old Testament professor. I need to look up meteorology and hunt through the whole stinking book to find it. There's, There's no, no citation. Specific, yeah. Specific citation. Because with, with a lot of those, you're supposed to give location. Yes. Not and, a paragraph, like a location, number. Right. Right. So you can go to and look up like the Loeb Classical Library, L O E B. Mm hmm. 
classical library. And then you can just search like a section of his uh, quote, and then you can find it. Um, but still, I'm wanting, you know, especially a, a, an issue so contentious as ancient wine in the Bible, I want to interact with some real primary sources, and he failed to uh, do that. So that's my contention. I would still give this a five on the Thinklings scale. Okay. That's a decent book. Uh, it can be yeah. a helpful resource for you. The sources are, are the, the information that he has is accurate, uh, but I have had to do a lot of work oh, to, to validate it. it. Okay. So I, it's not Aristotle's Meteorology, it's his metaphysics book that is the one I had to actually find the uh, Greek for, because that was the real clincher of a text for me. You know, on your 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 not quietly used blog, yeah. um, you should actually create a PDF with all your primary sources that go along with that book, like a yeah. like a guide, and mm -hmm. that could be something people could use. I just want to uh, read a quote by C.S. Lewis that uh, listener Caleb Sturgis sent in. Uh, he says this in letters to C.S. Lewis. Uh, this is Lewis writing a letter. He says, "As to my own book, the question." whether notes should come at the end of the chapter or at the bottom of the page is partly publisher and printer. Personally, I loathe a book where they come at the end and I am <laughs> writing mainly for people who will want to know where they must look to verify my facts. Dot, dot, dot. So, That's a man with properly ordered affections. See, there we go. So for my book and business or books and business, I'm just going to mention a book I got on sale on Kindle to drive Kim, Tim crazy. Uh, I saw a book now here's, here's actually the good thing of why I like this podcast and why it's been helpful for me. Um, the book accidental feminist went mm. on sale for $3 on Kindle the other day. And since you talked about it so glowingly, I picked up a copy. So I've got it. I haven't read it. I don't know when I will, but um, one of the things I like about, Tim Challies' a la carte or gospel ebooks is if you know what books are good, you can get cheap books. And the day of recording, actually, Tactics is what was like three bucks or something you said today? Yeah, two. So, Tim Challies, friend of the podcast. Word. So, that's my books and business. Awesome. And uh, I'm going to uh, cap a book that uh, I talked about a while back. Uh, I can't remember what episode, but I talked about Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putnam previously. It's a book I assign oh, yeah. in my classes. And at first, you're not really sure what you're getting yourself into. And that's, that's the one that had a lot of really good quotes at the beginning, right? We were, we were kind of liking no, that. No, that one was Deep Discipleship oh, by J.T. Right. English, right. which I still haven't finished yet, but I, I will get to that. And um, <clears throat> so we finished this in a class recently, and uh, I've read through this now twice, and each time I think I get a better flavor of who this person is, I'd still love, before I really pass judgment on the ministry ideas as a whole, I'd like to meet him and talk to him. But, you know, you don't always get that afforded to you. So maybe on the next read, I'll actually know what I think. But here's, here's a quote at the end. It's in a chapter called Finding Leaders for Your Church. And he's going to talk about the importance of making sure that the people you put in uh, places of spiritual influence have the right influence. And this paragraph I thought was worth the price of admission. So here's the paragraph. This is 168 of Real Life Discipleship. Keep in mind that while a natural leader influences people, he or she may not be spiritually mature. Too often, churches allow those with proven leadership abilities in the secular world to become leaders in the church without assessing where they are in the stages of spiritual growth. Hmm. The bottom line in business is money. 
numbers of products sold, share value, volume of customers, etc. And when gifted but spiritually unready believers are put in organizational leadership positions in the church, they bring this thinking with them. They think in terms of giving, attendance, salvation statistics, and buildings, but not in terms of making disciples. God may want these people to be leaders someday, but they must go through the maturing process or they can end up destroying the church they love, Hmm. sometimes unwittingly. And in parenthesis, churches don't split from the bottom up. They split from the top down. Certainly, churches must must and should think in terms of some of these bottom line things. But a godly leader, this is my favorite quote, a godly leader leads to the right place in the right way for the right reasons. When people aren't mature disciples, they cannot value making mature disciples because they don't understand what one looks like. This Mm. leadership problem is where we are right now in most churches in America. And so I think a very important question for ministry philosophy is, do the ends justify the means? As long as they get saved, as long as they're coming and they're giving, who cares what I had to do? Hmm. And according to Putnam, that would be incorrect. The ends do not justify the means because not only do you have to go to the right end, you have to get there the right way, the method, and Hmm. you have to do it with the right motive. I think also, I mean, as you've gone through all of this discipleship stuff, you've really kind of um, elevated what the goal is. Yeah. And too often within our churches, the goal is way short. Yeah. Uh, And so as a result, because we don't have the right goal, we think, oh, that person's mature when really they're not. Mm -hmm. And then that fuels the problem. Yeah. So um, I, I really think that spiritual maturity. Uh, and what is the spiritual maturity? Being genuinely like Christ. I think that is the standard. And the problem with that standard is it's sometimes hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what? I've just kind of come to the point where I'm okay with that. And mm-hmm. <laughs> five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll really know if that person's more like Christ or not. And I won't see that overnight, mm-hmm. but I will see it over mm-hmm. a larger group of time, which I think why, that's why the location for discipleship should be primarily the local church where you're around people for a long time. Um, to, give, to give a rating for the book, um, I think uh, Kevin Bowder was the first to maybe do this, where it's like, well, for the general populace, it's this. But oh, yeah. in a niche uh, application, it's this. So if you're like me, and you eat, sleep, breathe discipleship, I'll say it's a seven. If it's not, If you're not like me, and you're like, okay, I've had enough, okay, uh, I would say it's like a four. Okay. But over, so maybe I should average those and it's like a 5.75. But <laughs> that was perfect. Um, but Horrendous. Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putnam, I think a, a good book. That was, that was a, that quote was really good. Yeah. And, and I told the students that really good. You know, I think for whatever you thought about the first 167 pages, if you really take that paragraph to heart, you're going to do a lot of good things. Hmm. Um, that was worth the price of admission right there. There's a, a, a pastor I once knew who was getting rid of his library and has a bunch of free books. And you got to wonder if you're giving away a book for free, you must not have liked it that much or you yeah. liked it and it's old and you have extra copies. And so one of the books he had was Jesus CEO. That was the label, like the title of it. And it was this like business person sitting at like, like hands on a desk looking at you. 
And I remember thinking, this is like, you know, sometime in the early, well, mid to mid 2010s, you know, how much, how much business speak is there already in the church? So anyways, I digress. We have more important things to talk about now. Let's have a conversation about alcohol. And uh, kind of interesting, feeding off of or building off of Carter's uh, book and the comment about leadership. This is a big issue within church leadership. Uh, what 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 does the Bible actually teach about drinking alcohol? And uh, we have to frame the question correctly. That's one of the issues. Um, so when you guys think of alcohol and alcohol consumption, where do your minds go? Uh, what comes to mind? What texts come to mind? Or, or what do you guys think um, when it comes to this, this, this topic? Do you want to go first or me too? Um, so, yeah, I'll go first. Uh, my first thought, as far as a passage goes, I think of Ephesians 5. And uh, sorry, my uh, Do Not Disturb is turned off and Josh Boyd says hi. Um, What's up, Dr. Boyd? <laughs> so uh, my first thought is Ephesians 5, Do Not Be Drunk With Wine. And then as far as just in general, uh, as far as experientially, I think back to, you know, I lived uh, in a small town in Iowa and I was uh, 16 when I got saved. And so, uh, and I grew up in a family where alcohol was prevalent. And so I have drunk and uh, I have been drunk. And so when I first come to the conversation, I think of experiences uh, of this. And then obviously, when you become a believer, your perspective changes on those things. But so I think back to a lot of experiences, but then I, I think to that passage is usually probably the first thing that pops in my mind. I didn't know that about you. No, I didn't either. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I want to, I'll, I'll tell you a story off air after okay, this, that's fine. Um, but you know, you make bad decisions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will, you know, and if anyone wants to hear the story, I'm not ashamed to tell it, but you just have to find me in person. But Okay. So my experience, I've never drank. Uh, my whole life, the closest I've ever come is like, like little candies or something that might have some stuff in it. So my, my, uh, my parents, I'm very thankful for this, um, gave me a strong warning about how addictive it can be for certain people. And that scared me enough that I never touched anything. But your question is like, what do I think of when I think of alcohol? Yeah. And two things immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. Like you, Charlie, Ephesians 518, the main command, not to be drunk, but to be controlled by the spirit of God. And then Kevin Bowder's essay on alcohol as a social drink. Mm -hmm. So in his nick of time, I, he, he had a question, mm. um, something like, uh, alcohol getting the question right. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my first introductions to probably a good dose of critical thinking on a Christian living issue. His question is, it's not so much. Can you drink? I mean, obviously people in the Bible drink alcohol for various reasons. The question is, can you drink it as a social recreation beverage? And I, I thought it was really good because he, he showed me that when you say, can a Christian drink alcohol, it's an incomplete question. Or, unless you're just saying, can, the, can, the, can the, the product pass across my lips? And he was trying to say, yes, but there's always a purpose for what you're doing. So is it like a medicinal purpose? Is it a... Uh, cleansing water purpose. It was really interesting. So those are the first two thoughts that come up. And then I've got like the story of Noah and various prohibitions and warnings. 
And I, the only thing I wanted to <clears throat> see if you could clarify when he says like in a socially, okay, what, what, is he talking like recreational beverage in an entertaining way? So that's what I used to think, but um, I think what he means is not a necessity. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that, like, that's what he I means. I don't need to, but, but I can't, it's okay, yeah. and I want to, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I that's think what at he means. first okay. I thought it was like, oh, I'm going to go have a good time. I'm drinking it. I think what he means is there's no medical need. Yeah. Okay. There's exactly. no like hydration need. It yeah. is just. Oh, I which, could drink anything and I want to have a good time. Or, which are categories that are going to come up in our discussion. So, Okay, so um, that's helpful. Hey, thanks. I, I, simil- I guess I'll just kind of, I wanted this to be a little bit of like my testimony as well, but um, I have never drank either. I'm grateful mm-hmm. that I was raised in a home that uh, instilled in me Christian values. Just really quick, I will say, I was told not to, <laughs> not to throw either of my parents under the bus. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom and dad would have told me, you know, not to when I was underage and I didn't listen. So just to clarify that, mm-hmm. and, because I love my mom. And as we think through the um, prohibition, you've both mentioned, you both mentioned, you know, do not be drunk. Mm-hmm. And so as we think through the conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm setting up this conversation for the perspective of those who would agree that one should not be drunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that's as far as like most of our constituency and people who listen to our podcast, they're going to agree with that conclusion. Mm -hmm. You should not become drunk. Uh, But is it okay (laughs) to actually drink uh, an intoxicating beverage? And uh, one of the conversations is that there's a lot of scripture passages that seem to support that it is okay to drink. Uh, so I'm going to read through a few different scripture passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 14:26 states, "You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord, and you shall rejoice, you and your household." Uh, so that one is specifically mentions drinking wine as a beverage that would be something enjoyable and a good gift from God. In Psalm 104.14, we have, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So wine is here given as a good gift from God to gladden, to make happy the heart of man. And then you have specific instances and situations. Uh, a classic illustration is Jesus changing the water into wine. And I remember even being told, well, it probably wasn't wine. It was probably grape juice. I don't know how familiar you guys are with that argument. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard it said on, on multiple occasions, and it was just kind of like, okay, whatever. Um, but then you also have in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but mm-hmm. use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So as I kind of grew and matured and thought through this whole issue of drinking, I, I kind of struggled with this idea of, is it okay to drink at least a little bit and just to not be intoxicated? And from these scripture passages, it seems to be that that would be permissible. Then as I began studying the Song of Songs, there's a lot of intoxication language in the Song of Songs. Wine is a common metaphor for intimacy. In Song 5.1, 
It reads, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my, my wine with my milk. And then the narrator comes in and says, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply. And the word there for drink deeply is literally be intoxicated, be Hmm. drunk. You have these metaphors for uh, strong uh, wine or strong beverages in the song. In Song 8-2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. So this spiced wine would be, it seems, an even further intoxicating type of beverage. And so the song speaks about alcohol is almost uh, an aphrodisiac. And so uh, as I continued studying the song, I continued to see further and further evidence that there seems to be permission, in fact, not just permission, but the ability of a believer to enjoy intimacy and enjoy alcoholic beverages as a good gift from God. However, we do have several prohibitions, which you guys have already mentioned. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And Proverbs 23.20 says, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Proverbs 23, verses 30 through 35, has a long discourse about the drunkard constantly going back to uh, the alcoholic beverage. And so um, you have this appeal where, hey, it, it's, is it okay to drink a little bit, uh, and, but you just cannot become drunk. Um, and so within that setting, then I began to study, and Brumbelo kind of helped me a little bit here, what kind of beverages are being sold at the liquor store or at Hy-Vee And what kind of beverages are they talking about actually in the biblical corpus? And this is where I want to kind of share some of the things that I've studied and even connecting it to the Song of Songs. And what I learned is that basically we're talking about two different substances. And when we say, oh, Jesus turned the water into wine, so therefore I can go and drink wine. We've actually created what I would call, what is called a false analogy, because we're saying wine to Jesus is like wine at Hy-Vee or the liquor store or wherever else. And, and what I learned through this study is that these two substances are actually categorically different. Hmm. So it's like an anachronism as well, like, like my word wine, mm-hmm. what it is to put it back into the text, incorrect. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, to make that case, what we're going to do is we're going to actually analyze some uh, Greek sources. We'll talk about the Hebrew a little bit, but not a lot. We're going to basically be interacting with uh, New Testament Greek words. I know I'm an Old Testament guy, but I know wow. Greek. Okay, I can handle it. It'll be okay. And the ESV constantly translates these specific words as drunkard. which I find fascinating because you'll see a distinction in the translations in like the New King James. There's like three different Greek words uh, between uh, 1 Timothy 3 and um, um, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. 
Yep, First Timothy 3, Ephesians 5, and then uh, Matthew 11, how Jesus is called a wine-bibber in 11, Matthew eleven nineteen, and the ESV translates it a drunkard, a glutton and a drunkard. But it's actually a different word than, say, the word in Ephesians 5, and it's similarly a different word than what we see in First Timothy hmm. 3. And so what we learn uh, as we study through this is that there, the, the substance that they drank you know, just like we have different kinds of alcoholic beverages today, they had different alcoholic beverages as well. And as we study the ancient near, the ancient world, we'll see that this kind of a wine that they usually drank was of a very different substance than what you would buy, essay a hy So as we were recording this episode, we had to change locations and even time of recording. So this is a later day. And so you're probably going to notice a difference in our sound quality and recording efficacy, but the content is still pure gold. So Tim, why don't you pick up where we left off? So I'm going to talk about a couple of propositions as we think through this topic of alcohol, uh, alcohol in the ancient world. And the first uh, point that I want to make is that the alcoholic concentration was different. Um, when we examine like the alcohol of today, whether it's at the local grocery store or um, at a liquor store, the, the alcoholic content and even what's considered good wine is very different than, than what uh, we saw in the ancient world. I'm going to try to make that case uh, based on a few different passages and a few different words as well. First, when we see uh, wine in the New Testament, in Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus is described as somebody who drinks wine. Um, the, the New King James and the King James translated it wine bibber. We don't really use that word anymore. Uh, but it is a different word than the word drunkard. In fact, the ESV translates the word there, drunkard. But it's not drunkard. The word is literally a person who drinks wine. And then that might beg the question, well, what is wine? And of course, when we think of wine, we think of, well, the stuff that's at the local grocery store or at the liquor store. That's what Jesus drank. But as we examine the historical context, as we think through uh, what or examine the historical sources, we learned that wine to them was a very broad category. It essentially communicated anything that came from the vine, which could include grape juice, but also would include alcoholic beverages. So you might be like, really? I mean, this is ludicrous. Well, I'd encourage you to even just read through like your old KJV. They use terms like sweet wine. What is sweet wine? Well, don't ask me. I'm a Baptist. <laughs> so it's the produce of the vine that is sweet. So what would be a modern word that we would use oh, for that? Grape juice or juice? We would call that grape juice. So there's actually still a remnant of this idea found in the English language. So you have the word wine drinker, and Jesus was a wine drinker. Then in 1 Timothy 3.3 3 and Titus 1.7, you have the qualifications of the pastor. A different word is used here. The, uh, the pastor, the man interested in the ministry, uh, should not be given to wine. Uh, that's how I think the New King James translates it in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. Well, what does it mean to not be given to wine? 
And you can take a look at this. The Greek word is actually different. Hmm. And yeah. again, the ESV uses a different or translates it drunkard. So what the ESV has done is they've smashed these three different Greek words into one translation, hmm. and they've translated them all drunkard. So Jesus is a wine drinker. A pastor is not supposed to be one given to wine. This word not given to wine is not a common word in the New Testament. We have it in those two instances. Um, its meaning, though, becomes really apparent in 1 Timothy 3.8. In fact, uh, G.K. Knight, in his commentary in the New International Greek Testament comment commentary series, he specifically notes that um, not given to mess, not given to much wine, is best explained by the synonymous and more explicit expression in verse eight. What does it say in First Timothy three eight? Do any of you have it up there? I do. It's not addicted to much wine. Yeah. Okay, so did they drink wine? Yes, they just yes. Sh shouldn't drink much of it. Correct. Okay. Hmm. Now this provides some of the context for Timothy and what God, what God, <laughs> what Paul tells Timothy in First Timothy five twenty three. First Timothy five twenty three reads: No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So in other words, Timothy is seeking to be blameless, and he would not drink wine. And so drinking only water, however, had adverse effects on his health. So Paul admonishes him to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. So as we think through these two different words for drinking wine, you have Jesus, who was a wine drinker. And then you have the qualifications of the pastor, don't be given too much wine. And then, of course, you have the word to be a drunkard. Okay, we see that word a few times in the, um, in the, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5.11, 1 Corinthians 6.10, you know, um, I'll read 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard. And that's a different word. Okay, so it's not just one flat word like the ESV has done and translated them all as drunkard. You had a historical situation where they would drink wine. That was a regular beverage that they that they To be a church member, you weren't supposed to be a drunkard. The point is that you should be blameless, which means you shouldn't be given too much wine. Uh, in other words, you should be a wine drinker like Jesus. Okay, how are we doing? Any questions? No, I'm following. Okay, so what was this wine that they drank? Well, this is where we get into historical sources. And this is where we start to think through what um, what did Aristotle have to say about wine? And I want to I'm going to actually read a little bit of Aristotle. This is from the book that I talked about, Brumbelo, Ancient Wine in the Bible. But he's just citing um, <clears throat> the uh, he's just citing regular sources. So you could um, you could look this up at uh, the Loeb Classical Library yourself. 
I'm going to read, uh, those liquids which are thickened by heat are a mixture. Wine is a liquid which raises a difficulty, for it is both liable to evaporation and it also thickens. For instance, new wine does. The reason is that the word wine is ambiguous and different wines behave in different ways. Okay, so I just want to emphasize that point. This is Aristotle. We're not talking about some new resource or anything, but Aristotle is saying that there are different kinds of wines which behave differently. New wine is more earthy than old. For this reason, it is more apt to be thickened by heat and less apt to be congealed by cold. For it contains much heat and a great proportion of earth. So what would be an earthy wine? I no idea. No, no clue. Okay, so an earthy wine would be... Um, would be a grape juice because when you boil it, what happens? Becomes jelly? I don't know. Yeah, it's gonna thicken up. Okay. Because what what's in grape juice is sugar. And so when the water comes out of it, then it's gonna get thicker and it and and that's what will happen. But if the sugars, okay, uh react with the yeast and then form alcohol, what's gonna happen then when you boil it? Not the jelly. <laughs> it's going to evaporate because the sugars have broken down to become alcohol. And when you boil alcohol, what happens? Oh, it I evaporates. Spoke, okay. Yeah, you, you cook off the alcohol like in a, okay. Right. So, what? yes, Carter. Are you, are you telling me that for all these years I've been eating peanut butter and wine sandwiches instead of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yum yum. So, <laughs> PBNW. <laughs> Sorry, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. L well, listener, it, it, it does. Listen, this, listener, this other recording session is also taking place in the wee hours of the morning. So Ooh. there's a time difference here, too. Uh, so he Sorry, states, Tim, go ahead. if all wine has some sediment in it, then it will belong to <clears throat> earth or to water. So think sediment, think sugar, think earthy. Okay, so the four, the four ancient, um, yeah, um, earth, wind, fire, water. There you go, earth and wind. All right. If all wine, uh, let's see here. The liquids that are thickened by cold are of the nature of earth. Those that are thickened either by heat or by cold consist of more than one element, like on oil and honey and sweet wine. So, what did he just compare it to? Honey. Well, yeah, sugar. Hmm. Okay, so the word wine it can be a little bit uh, was ambiguous because that's what that's what they had. Um, let's see here. Yeah. Okay, Tim, so that's Aristotle. Yeah. Could, did you mention? I know you mentioned where someone could find that. What exact work is that being read from? For my own well, edification, I'm reading ancient wine. Ancient wine in the Bible and the Bible, the case for abstinence. But in the books and business section, when we recorded earlier, uh, I mentioned how the citation in that book is not very good. Now, I went and I found the actual Greek source because I wanted to see does it actually use the word oinos? And the answer is that it does. The word that he's interacting there the whole time is oinos, 
which means that oinos, wine to them, was simply a product of the vine. It could be grape juice or it could be an alcoholic wine. I don't like the book as much just because he doesn't do a good job citing stuff, but uh, it still is a nice, what, condensation of a bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first point to establish is when the Bible talks about wine, it's not necessarily talking about uh, what you would go to the grocery store and purchase or to um, the liquor store. Uh, that wine it would be different uh, it there could it could be the same actually I should say but the word wine has a broad semantic range that would include anything produced from the vine and we should so probably just point out that I, I just had a thought the listener might wonder why did you quote Aristotle and Aristotle he would have lived oh you can probably connect these dots for us Tim but but quoting Aristotle is like quoting someone much closer to the time period who would have used the word in the same way. Is that what you're saying here? That's why you had the quote yes. from Aristotle? Okay. That's mm -hmm. what I thought. I thought maybe for our listeners that would be helpful. And, and some might have a problem. Well, that was 300 years before Jesus, but Kalumala and others uh, have written, they've uncovered other writings where we see them using the words the same way. And Brumbelow actually has those citations in, in his book okay. as well. <clears throat> I found Aristotle's the most striking because he is making a comparison between the two different kinds of wine, okay. which are two substances we use different words to describe. We use grape juice and wine, alcoholic wine, to distinguish. They didn't. It was all one word. Yes. And just in case someone listening is like, well, you know, is, is that the only phenomena in language where something like that happens? And the answer is definitely no. For example, in today's vernacular, if we were talking about that powerful thing that blows around outside and like moves the leaves in the trees, we would call that wind. Wind. And if we talked about what I inhale and exhale, what do I call that? Air. Well, um, or a breath. So, like, I'm I'm taking. A, so, you just you illustrated my point perfectly. Oh, I see. We would. I'm inhaling and exhaling, and it's it's breath. But then there's also yeah. something separate from the wind and the breath, which is air. But if you go to a passage like John three, where Jesus talks about the wind and he talks about the spirit, guess what? Mm -hmm. It's all the same term, pneuma. And so. Mm -hmm. you, it's just there are many words in essentially every language that have different ranges of meaning and so uh oinos would not be a unique one in that sense this happens all mm -hmm. over the place yeah yep so the first point is that oinos is not necessarily alcoholic wine but it would also include alcoholic wine now um even in modern days a lot of times somebody might buy some grape juice and i don't know maybe we didn't maybe a lot of people don't do this but they'll they'll water it down like i remember even some people saying hey you know what it's kind of strong your kid doesn't need that much sugar uh, this was actually advised to us when our children were young uh, mix it half and half the grape juice with the water well why well because it's pretty sweet and it'll last longer if you do that 
that was the custom in the ancient world. And that was not only the case for grape juice, but it was also the case for alcoholic wine. In fact, drinking alcoholic wine was not something that the ancients, I'm sorry, drinking undiluted alcoholic wine was not something that the ancients did. So I have a book here that I'm reading. It's called the Oxford Classical Dictionary. This is not a Christian resource. Okay. This is a higher critical resource that's helpful for learning about the ancient culture and customs of the ancient world. And in this book, I'm just going to read a little portion. Wine was the everyday drink of all classes in Greece and Rome. Hmm. Everybody drank wine. It was just the everyday drink. What would be the everyday drink for us today? I want you to think about that a little bit. We'll come back to that point. Now I'm going to keep reading. It was also a key component of one of the central social institutions of the elite, the dinner and drinking party. Okay, so they would have their banqueting halls where they'd have their drinking parties and they would drink and they would drink a lot and they would get drunk. Okay, so uh, what were they drinking? It states, I continue to read here, on such occasions, large quantities of wine were drunk, but it was invariably heavily diluted with water. It was considered a mark of uncivilized peoples, untouched by classical culture, that they drank wine neat with supposed disastrous effects on their mental and physical health. Now, this is not some, you know, don't drink kind of resource. The author here is, you know, I don't actually know, JJP, whoever the world that is, okay? It's not some conservative resource. This is simply something that, the, that we know about the ancient world. When Jesus was a wine drinker, what did he drink? Well, from what you're saying, are you making the argument that he was just drinking grape juice? Well, it, there could be, but I'm fine with him. Okay, this gets into another point, right? Well, we can chemically and 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 change, alter the the wine and the grape juice so that we can regulate how much alcohol content is in it. You know, they have whole studies. I've downloaded them where when is it considered wine? Because when or alcoholic wine in our culture, because when it's alcoholic wine, guess what? The government taxes it and they want money. Oh, <laughs> so interesting. They have all of this stuff regulated. Now, put yourself back in the ancient world. When is it actually alcoholic? Are I don't you know. Me? No, no. Well, the point is that there's not like, oh, well, this is grape juice. Oh, well, this is alcoholic wine. You know, it's going to be at varying stages of. And. Um, okay substance okay so this gets into well what is good wine and i'm going to go there in a little bit okay. too okay but the point that i'm trying to establish is is that well was it grape juice i am fine saying jesus drank he drank wine uh, just like we would drink well what do we drink today do you guys like drinking water I, mean, I drink water all the time we need to drink water because it's time. healthy yeah. for us right but what do you like to drink andy what do you have in your Coffee. hand right now Coffee. coffee right yeah. why do you prefer coffee uh i like the caffeine in it i like the flavor a lot i really ah, the like flavor. The, various, the various varieties of flavors of coffee okay so think through when it's saying in this book wine was the everyday drink of all classes in greece and rome it was the everyday drink it was what they drank all the time well what do you drink 
all the time? Coffee and water. Yeah. Okay. And so some kombucha. A That's lot it. of people might have like some yeah, soda. They might have some kind pop. of juice that they like. Yeah. Pop. Okay. If I did, if you're like, what in our culture today is the everyday drink? I'd say pop. I think most people like before I had health issues and I had switched to coffee. I was like a pop guy all the time. Tons okay. and tons of pop. So you just shelve that and think about that for a little bit. Okay. So the point established here is simply that wine in the ancient world could be grape juice. It could be alcoholic. It could be strongly alcoholic. There could be a lot of alcohol in it. That is a very real possibility. They had that kind of wine as well. Um, the, um, um, in both forms though would have been diluted and diluted uh, significantly. It was usually three to four parts uh, to one, three to four parts to one. So when they're at a drinking party, they're drinking a lot. And then they would get drunk. And to get drunk, they would have to drink a lot. And that's because even at the drinking parties, you're saying they were drinking the diluted wine. Yes. Okay. So like, when I was in middle school, <clears throat> in my public school, they told us, hey, you can get drunk and it takes like two beers or four glasses of wine or two shots of, you know, whatever to get starting buzz or whatever. You're saying since that's diluted, it, it, it may take them many more cups of it, oh, but yes. they still could get drunk. It just took more time. Like we can pretty efficiently get drunk if we want, if we grab the really strong spirited stuff. But you're saying in their day at these parties, it was, they could drink a lot, but then they would still want to get drunk. It just took them a little more effort. Yes. And uh, there's this one uh, historical source that we have that mentions uh, the wine of, I can't remember where it is. You know, let's just say Acadia, the wine of Acadia creates madness in men and pregnancy in women. How does it create madness in men and pregnancy in women? That sounds like they're getting drunk, sloshed. They're yeah, getting they're, drunk. They're gone. Three sheets to the wind, okay. all that stuff. Exactly. Okay, so this is what I um, have seen in this, in this biblical literature, is just that the wine that they had could be alcoholic. It likely had a little bit of alcohol in it. But um, but was not very intoxicating unless drank in large quantities. Uh, the alcoholic content of the wine would not have been as significant as the alcoholic content of the wine on our shelves because of what they valued uh, in a good wine. And I'll transition maybe to that next. Um, because of what they valued in a good wine uh, was the sugar. And so if you think through that, they didn't, they couldn't just dump more processed sugar into the substance. You know, if they wanted it to be sweet, what would it, what would, what would have to be in the wine? Yeah. Sugar, the natural sugars. Wow. <clears throat> so in other words, the yeast had not reacted with the sugars much yet uh, to um, create the fermentation and then the alcohol. It's okay, so, so funny. Yeah. What you're saying, there's so many things that I'm, that I think I've disentangled my own, like cult, my own historical era from the Bible's era. Uh -huh. But like right there, you just made the point, like if they want to sweeten the wine, how are they going to do it? They can't put processed sugar in. That's mm -hmm. a really good point. You could do honey, mm -hmm. but 
probably don't have copious amounts of that lying around. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. So like we like really good sugary drinks and for them to make a good sugary drink would actually be rather challenging. Yeah. They didn't have much of it. And if they did have a good sugary drink, what was the common everyday beverage of the ancient world? Okay. Wine. Maybe juice or wine. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was that wine though? Okay. It could have some alcohol in it, but the value would have been more of the grape juice. Yeah. I, I actually think that that point is, is really missed on a modern audience, especially in America, because there, there are still places in the world where you couldn't just go buy a bag of sugar. So, but if I go to high V, which is literally just, you know, a, a couple minute drive for me, I could buy literally hundreds of pounds of sugar. And, and they, that, that I think we really need to consider that fact. Like they, they couldn't just, Oh, my Kool-Aid isn't sweet enough. Well, let's put more sugar in my Kool-Aid. <laughs> uh, I, I think saying- that's actually, I think that's a profound point that we, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what happens often in these types of discussion is anachronism, you know, like we're applying mm-hmm. something now back and we have to be very careful not to do that. So I think that's a really good point. And could I insert here that Andy used a phrase that's one of my favorite phrases? He said, oh, really? you said three sheets in the wind. And mm-hmm. uh, do you know the origin of that phrase three sheets in the wind no <clears throat> i literally have no idea where that came from i saw it on a movie one time which so I'm not it, talk about. it does mean to be drunk and it's a really cool metaphor it it's referring to a sailor and you have the 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 sheets you know the what what's the mm-hmm. um the sail or whatever <clears throat> the, the sail and you tie them down and you tie them down and you put them in p- specific locations so the wind drives the ship where you want it to go mm-hmm. and if you let them go loose you let them go out of control what happens to the boat it goes all over the oh, place it go any- oh, so the, the, the boat is out oh, of that's control. really good mm. the that's boat a really good illustration drunk wow. <laughs> so it's it's a great phrase great phrase well imagine trying <clears throat> trying to drive that like trying to steer that you, if you let the sails go on the boat, you can't. You can't steer it. You have no power. Mm-hmm. You're completely totally out of at control. the whims of another power. Yeah. Wow. Three sheets in the wind. I think it's to the wind, but either oh, way. To the wind, sorry. <clears throat> yes, three sheets in the wind. That was really interesting. So I have, um, you know, this has been something that has ruminated in my mind. And. And uh, then um, I started studying the Song of Songs. Now, what do you have then in the Song of Songs? Lots of alcohol metaphors. In fact, that's what you have uh, in the Bible. I'm sorry, not metaphors, but you have these passages that speak of drinking rather approvingly. And so as I studied the Old Testament, I'm like, man, you know, some of this doesn't quite make sense because the the beverages repeatedly um, are something positive. 
Uh, so for example, I'll read a few passages for you. In Deuteronomy 14, 26, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your household. So in Deuteronomy 40, 14, 26, it talks about drinking wine. Uh, in the similar drink, uh, there's this Hebrew word, shakar. It's often translated beer in uh, the HCSB and the CSB translations. And the reason for drinking these substances is to enjoy the good blessings of God. So in Psalm 104.14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So we have these passages that speak rather approvingly of uh, drinking alcoholic beverages as a good gift from God and being grateful and thankful uh, for those alcoholic beverages. The question then, <clears throat> uh, so I took that kind of knowledge and then I went to the Song of Songs, where in Song 1-2 it states, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Well, wh in what way is his love better than wine? And the common metaphor as the interpretation of it is, well, what is wine? So we think about wine, we think that wine <clears throat> is intoxicating. So mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more intoxicating than wine. And so it's, it's speaking about this intoxicating effect of wine. And that does that make sense? So yeah, you're saying. Can I can I, can I just say what I think you're saying? Go ahead. We today, with our one-dimensional understanding of what wine is, read. <laughs> sorry. The Song of Solomon, and think, oh, he's talking about love being super intoxicating. Like, mm -hmm. is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Are you saying it's that's a, what it really means? Well, I'm gonna. It might. Okay. 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 I, I actually think it's hitting on two levels. Okay. Uh, because wine was something when drank, it did have an intoxicating effect, but wine also was sweet well sweet grape juice yeah yes. i was just thinking are you saying like the love is sweet is the actual metaphor and that's, that you think might have the been question. intended uh-huh so what is she highlighting mm. in, in song one two let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because they're sweet or is it because they're intoxicating and that becomes the question mm. or is wine provide a very fitting uh, metaphor for love because it kind of hits on both of those aspects oh yeah it's sweet and also it's intoxicating okay so um we have in song two four he brought me to the banqueting house this was literally the house of and so what is the emphasis here intoxication well it's the drinking house is there an intoxicating effect to love yes there is so is that what's being highlighted there? I think so. Hmm. Okay, so... Um, but are ahead. you also... No, no. <clears throat> so you're also saying, though, with what you mentioned earlier, it's possible that the drinking house, it's still going to take time to get intoxicated. Like, it's not yes. like a one kiss, mm -hmm. like one shot of Jack or whatever that you right. have today. Like, you, you, like, you can get intoxicated, 
but it's going to take some effort at the jug of wine. Correct. So I read to you from the Oxford Classical Dictionary, which would be around, you know, the time of Jesus or a hundred years earlier or later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm jumping into the Song of Songs. I'm going a thousand years before. Well, is it the same idea? And I would consider that is a lot of distance. It is a long distance, but, but this seems to still be that what they did, even in the times of say Solomon. Now, did they sometimes drink drink alcohol undiluted and it was intoxicating yes i mean we know that that was the case i would say that's actually the more viable uh analogy to modern day wine they're undiluted but the general thing that they drank was a diluted um wine that was sweet and a little bit alcoholic okay i'm going to try to make that case again from the song of songs where this this one i want to write a paper on i don't know if anybody goes there on this one in song 410 it says how beautiful is your love my sister my bride how much better is your love than wine so it's very similar to song one two it's better than wine in song five one i ate my honeycomb with my honey i drank my wine with my milk Okay, wine and milk are colluded together, which is a really odd connection because milk and honey don't go, I'm sorry, milk and wine don't go together. Okay, but this is, uh, so what's going on here? Well, I think these are just the two delicious beverages that they would be able to drink. You know, who wants to drink, you know, water all the time? Well, I mean, we should also probably say, like, when we think of drinking water today, we're thinking of water that's come from a treatment plant that's been purified. Correct. And depending on where you're at, if you don't have a clear running stream from a mountain, the water you might have could be a little stagnant and stanky. And sometimes that water would make you sick. And so, yeah, do I want a refreshing drink of tepid water or do I want like a delicious glass of milk <clears throat> right. or grape juice? Okay. Right. And so that's another aspect of this conversation that we need to go to is to think through the reason they drank was because of health. But I'm not going to go there quite yet because the we're stepping all the way back into the days of Solomon now. Now, this last text is a little bit erotic. I'm going to basically just explain what the text is communicating. All right. And I think that this can really help our listeners understand the ancient culture of what wine was. Uh, so in song seven, um, seven, I'm going to pick it up at verse seven. Okay. This is a rather erotic section of the song. I'm just going to read the Bible and I'm going to explain what it means. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. So the breasts are like the clusters of the palm tree. Hey, the clusters parents. The- hey parents, we're going somewhere. You might want to view this if you have children and- in your van right now <laughs> go ahead so the, cl- the clusters are clusters of figs okay so when you think of a palm tree don't think coconuts think actually fig palm trees and the figs are sweet okay they're sugary okay are you following me mm-hmm Okay, so now in verse 8, I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. Okay, so now he flips the metaphor and it's the clusters of the vine. Well, clusters of the vine are grapes. And grapes are, just like figs, 
sweet, sweet and not yet alcoholic. Not yet alcoholic. All right. And then continuing, and the scent of your breath is like apples. And what are apples? Sweet. Sweet. Okay. And they make your breath smell good. Okay. Now in verse nine, and your mouth like the best wine. Your mouth like the best wine. Well, in what way is her mouth like the best wine? What is best wine? What is good wine? Are you, you know, following me? Yeah. What's the text been all about in this sweetness. section? It's been sweetness. sweetness. Okay. It's not alcoholic. So when I was working through the song, I remember from my PhD, I went out to eat with some guys and I was saying how, yeah, I don't ever drink. I've never drank. I don't even really care to, but it wouldn't be, I wouldn't, if I wasn't under contract not to, I wouldn't mind experimenting just because of my studies of the song. Um, but then I started studying through it. The point of this is not the intoxicating effect of the wine. Hmm. The point of the analogy is the sweetness and how it freshens the breath. It tastes good. And that's what intimacy is. It tastes connection. The point of, 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 uh, of the analogy is the, is the enjoyability of it. It's mm. something that you like. It's something that you enjoy. And the best wine, and this is literally a definition of good wine, which we've messed up. Okay, a lot of people interpret good wine as being high alcohol content. They didn't they don't they don't ever have a good sugary drinks to eat or drink. They never had that. Good wine would have been sugary. Mm -hmm. That's really and interesting. And we see that in the Song of Songs. So it states there in verse 9, your mouth is like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my lover, gliding over lips and teeth. And so what are they doing? They're literally making out. And each other's mouths taste good. And the wine is an illustration of that and that it is sweet. And it functions as a metaphor for um, enjoyable making out with one spouse. Okay, so it's sweet. And then lastly, in song 8-2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. Pomegranate, pomegranate juice would be sweet. So what is the spiced wine? I used to think that the spiced wine was like the, the stuff that they made super intoxicating. And the point is intoxication. It's not intoxication. Okay, so just like you take apple juice and you can add cinnamon yeah. and cloves yeah. and stuff to it to make apple cider and make it really good. Ding, 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 ding. That's spiced wine. So think grape juice that's sweet, that's actually had stuff added to it. Uh, to uh, highlight and accentuate the flavor. All right, how are we doing? Do we understand what wine is? Yeah. And actually, can I just, I know we're going, this is probably going to be a longer episode, but <clears throat> there's maybe a parallel to, if, you're, if what you're saying is correct, you could actually use, I know this is going to sound shocking that I would come up with this, but a coffee parallel. So when, I, when we drink coffee, we really like coffees <clears throat> that have good, flavors of the beans and i i rarely think about the caffeine content as a coffee connoisseur like i don't care if there's like high or low caffeine content in fact 
if I could get the same taste with the lowest amount of caffeine possible, I would, because then I could drink more coffee before I'm like, you know, a little bit like feeling funny. The only reason like people don't like decaf is it messes with the taste. So it's almost, it's funny because as a coffee connoisseur, I don't think of caffeine content, but if in like 2000 years from now, we had written things down about coffee and people are like, they wanted the stuff with the highest caffeine content. I would tell you that like um, death wish coffee, which has like triple the amount of caffeine doesn't actually taste good people. And that's interesting. So it's almost like a very similar parallel to what you're saying. Minus yeah. there's no intoxication element. Yeah. So huh. in John two, you have Jesus tearing the water into wine. Now, as I've looked at the song and I've looked at the Old Testament, good wine is primarily the focus of it is the sweetness, not the alcohol <clears throat> content. Would it have some alcohol? Yes, not as much. Would it be diluted with water? Yes, not that much. In John 10, I'm sorry, John 2.10, it says, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And I've been on both sides of this. Well, what is good wine? Well, it's alcoholic. Well, it's not alcoholic. Honestly, according to Aristotle, it could be alcoholic. It could not be alcoholic. But how did they interpret good wine? I see. It's sugary. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everybody goes, well, Jesus changed the water into wine. I'm like, you realize there's actually very strong evidence that what Jesus turned the water into was what we would have more in common with grape juice than what you would go and purchase at the local grocery store or the liquor store. Um, and I'm not just some fuddy-duddy, you know, teetotaler or whatever. This is a historical argument for um, the substance that is called wine in the Old Testament and New Testament as being something that is not that alcoholic. Okay, so... I went through that a lot. Um, connecting it to the the health, uh, you can analyze the modern um, alcoholic beverages and how the CDC and the dietary guidelines. The di I have it right here. The dietary guidelines for Americans states the dietary guidelines does not recommend that any indi that individuals who do not drink alcohol start drinking for any reason. So I find it fascinating that. Our government's resources say don't drink. And furthermore, um, one alcoholic drink equivalent is defined as 14 grams of pure alcohol. The following count as one alcoholic drink equivalent, 12 fluid ounces of regular beer. Okay, so 12 fluid ounces would be about one can. Five fluid ounces of wine. One and a half fluid ounces of 80 proof distilled spirits. Okay, so in other words, you're getting into the pretty pretty strong stuff. And then if you can study this stuff out for yourself, I'm not, you can just do a search online. Well, how much should uh, even a person drink um, and that it would be okay? They say to help Americans move toward a healthy dietary pattern. And minimize risks associated with drinking. Adults of legal drinking age can choose not to drink. They say that again. Or to drink in moderation by limiting intakes to two drinks or less a day for men. And one drink or less in a day for women. Okay, so two beers. That's it. Or one beer if you're a woman. And I find it fascinating how sexist the document is. Because it has different standards for men or women. 
And the reason for that is because of the overall makeup of the bodies and the differences between men and women and how they can handle the alcohol differently. And this actually builds into my case against drinking again from the Song of Songs. Because as I continued to study sexuality and began to realize the complications that modern alcohol creates for intimacy, basically they say, listen, girls, if you want to have an intimate encounter, don't drink because it messes you up. Okay. It's not going to go well. In fact, these marriage manuals talk about intimacy, particularly for like a couple getting married, what is often associated with weddings? Well, booze. Booze, the alcohol. All right. And they basically say, listen, if you are hoping to have some kind of an intimate encounter, don't drink. Or if you're going to drink, don't plan on anything that night because it messes you up. And I'm like, that is so fascinating because in the Old Testament and in the Song of Songs, you don't have that. Well, why is that? Because mm. what were they drinking? Interesting. It was, it was primarily watered down grape juice that had sugar in it and a little bit of alcohol. Not enough that's going to actually mess them up and prohibit or inhibit uh, sexual desire or even the ability to have a sexual encounter. So men and women, it's, first of all, the quantity that they're saying to drink is extremely low. And then second, um, the connection to the song, again, illustrates the difference uh, between these two substances. Okay, so the health benefits. But we have the New Testament, and it talks about how they should drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. And just like Andy said, then what would they do? Well, they didn't have processed water processing plants to have pure water. So what was very commonly done? Well, they would take a little bit of wine and include it with the water to purify the water. So will I never drink? Oh, I could see maybe, unlikely, but possibly a, a historical situation in my life where the water is impure and thus using an alcoholic wine that's even processed, okay, which is not good stuff for you, but still processed to clean up the water. And if I am placed in some kind of a historical setting where that's necessary, then I would have a very clear conscience drinking alcoholic beverages for that reason in that setting, for my health, diluted with uh, uh, heavily diluted with water as a beverage to be able to drink uh, safely uh, the water. I believe that's what Jesus did. And I have a clear conscience doing that. Now, when in our culture would that ever happen? When in American culture would I ever be placed in a situation where I have no access to clean drinking fluids to then be able to uh, be of necessity use some kind of an alcoholic beverage at the local liquor store, grocery store to then have clean water? I mean, we're talking some sort of a cataclysmic, the grid goes down, nuclear bomb. It'd have to yeah. be a pretty, like maybe you know, something like the stars falling from the sky or whatever. Okay. So Charlie, you look like you had something to say. So I don't know if this is what we want to do. It probably isn't. 
But I actually, I could throw out a, a, I'm interested to hear what Tim would, would say to this, this case study. Do it. Um, so I actually, I won't name names, but if I named the name, you would both know who I'm talking about. You would know them, but I have heard of, uh, vocal musicians utilizing alcohol to sterilize and clear their throats after multiple performances. And obviously if they are a Christian musician, they have issues with that, but I've, I've heard of that. Um, so, you know, obviously Timothy is more of a, a more specific medical issue. It's not a practical musical thing but what, what would you think of someone use utilizing something like that for uh the clearing of their throat yeah so there's some people that have been told well my doctor said that i should have a little bit of red wine because it's good for my heart and i'm like well what is a little bit of red wine and how good is it for your heart <laughs> and maybe wonder how uh if you ask your doctor is there something else i could have instead and actually, so this medical use of red wine, um, and you just just drink grape out all of the junk that the actual wine has. So, a lot of times when we think through medical uses of alcoholic beverages today, I'm not saying that there can't be some. I mean, I take Nyquil. I have a completely clear conscience having taking Nyquil when I'm sick, uh, which has alcohol in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it for medicinal purposes. That's the reason. Uh, is this a medicinal purpose that the individual is using it for? Would something else work instead? Uh, and if it if it is in such low quantity and being used for medicinal purposes, I don't have a problem with it. Um, anyway, Andy, did you want to chime in? Um, I don't know. I mean, you don't have to. I well, just, no, no. I I, I would say that I've got something else. No, I would say I'm not sure what to say about that one, except that I have a an anecdote. But Charlie, I just have an anecdote. Go ahead, Charlie. I'll yeah. Go. So in Proverbs 31, you have it's Charlie, not for oh, kings. Charlie had one Tim. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. Well, well I was just gonna. What I wanted you to say is what you said. So we could use alcohol to clear our throats, but oh, we have this other thing that, like cough medicine, which is a controlled amount of something that is alcoholic for a medicinal purpose so you don't need to go buy a bottle of wine you could go buy nyquil or uh just last night i took dayquil um and and so uh again a modern circumstance that completely removes the 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 medical necessity because we have other Mm -hmm. i would say much better medicinal options and then uh you you mentioned the uh, well, what if my doctor says drink red wine? It's good for my heart. Well, you better never order a pizza from Domino's because you're a huge hypocrite if you do, because that <laughs> pizza is horrible for your heart. Oh, that's good, Charlie. That's so, really like, good. People, people want to find a justification for something. You better never go through the McDonald's drive-through if you're really concerned about your heart. Oh, that was a great reductio, Charlie. That was really good. I'll just share my anecdote really quick. <clears throat> I worked at a camp with my wife one summer. We were cabin we were like unit leaders so you had cabins with counselors and then we were we each had like four or five counselors we were over and we would go and check the cabins on the very first night 
and take any contraband. So students would show, or you know, campers would show up with like knives and CD players at the time because it was a long time ago, everybody. And uh, so, anyways, one guy showed up with a paintball gun, a hay hook, which you know, a, a mask from a horror movie. Uh, and something else. And so it's just, we have really funny stories, but this one kid came with a flat, and it was like 12, 12 bottles of NyQuil. We asked, like, we're like, why do you have NyQuil? And he's like, well, I was going to get drunk this week. Wow. He literally, because there was, because he could buy the NyQuil, he thought he, if he drank it all, he would get drunk at camp. Wow. He would be and in so trouble. We're like, you can't have that. So all the unit leaders got a bottle of NyQuil. Um, but like, if you drink <laughs> NyQuil to get drunk, I don't even think you get drunk. I think by the time that much alcohol is in your system, all those other chemicals would like kill you or you'd be extremely sleepy and very decongested. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, <clears throat> that's not anyways. So in Proverbs 31 states is not for Kings to Lemuel is not for Kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink. Should leadership be held to a higher standard? Yes, I believe so. We see that in both First Timothy 3, Titus 1, and in Proverbs 31. If you're in a position of leadership, then you should refrain from these kinds of beverages. In verse 5, thus they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Then it states when and who to give strong drink to. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. So who who drinks? The people who are dying, it's like their form of morphine to ease their pain and suffering as they pass. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. The point's not to necessarily that that person drink, but just like the poor, the poor person. Um, but in contrast to the rich, or not to the rich, to the leader, the leader should not drink. And that's the point of comparison. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. Here you have an obligation by the to the priesthood that they were not to drink in specific situations. And then in Numbers chapter 6, you have the Nazarite vow, where they were not supposed to drink wine or similar drink. God seems to set a standard, a higher standard for those who are priests. And that, which is interesting too, because we are Baptists and we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Okay, you think about that. Um, and then also, if you're in a position of leadership, why would a leader of God's church uh, be drinking a substance that is not needed? It is not a necessity in our current culture for one's health. First Timothy 5.23, would Timothy drink in our world? No. If you gave something that you picked up at the grocery store to Paul or to Jesus, I imagine they would have taken a sip of that and said, what, are you trying to get me drunk? Water that down. It doesn't even taste good. We have created a false analogy and we've said, hey, this is okay. And this is okay for Christians. And what we've done is we've cast, we've cast wisdom to the wind and we're walking in the way of folly, in the way that leads to destruction. And so. Christian leaders specifically, but even just as Christians, to walk in wisdom. So I won't drink. And you can call me a legalist, okay? Whatever, I don't care. I'm seeking to live a holy and upright life before the Lord. And I would encourage you to take your booze and dump them down the drain. And don't buy them again. You don't need it. 
enjoy the good gifts that God's given. Enjoy the grape juice. Enjoy the sweet blessings that God's given. And they are good things. And be and drink them, enjoy them with a grateful heart. That's my exhortation for you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.